Good morning. Is anything going on later today? I've heard there was something going on down in Atlanta later today. Of course, it's the Super Bowl. And uh, unless you've been under a rock the last little bit, you know that this game is taking place. And most of you probably even know who's playing in it. I can't tell you from one year to the next who's playing in them, who played last year or the year before. But I always know who's playing in the one that's coming up. And this is the, this is the Patriots versus the Rams. And what's been interesting to me, if you've been, if you're a fan of football or if you've even just been following the news, you'll know that there has been a, a lot brought up about the fact that the Rams are even in the Super Bowl. And the reason that that's the case is because they say that they shouldn't be there because there was a blown interference call at the end of the NFC Championship game a couple of weeks ago. And if that call had been made, which universally pretty much everyone has said it should have been called, if that had been called, then the Saints would have won the NFC Championship game and that they would be the ones who would be playing in the Super Bowl today and not the Rams. And so as a result, lawsuits have been filed. There's a call to change the rules of the game as to what can be looked at through instant replay and how that can be challenged. The NFL commissioner is under fire for how he's handled the whole thing. People are saying that this game is tainted and that Super Bowl 53 is going to go down with an asterisk next to it. And you can be assured no matter who wins this game tonight, the Saints fans are going to be up in arms about it. And, and I understand all of that. What I found interesting, though, in my just thinking about this, what I found interesting is that this whole argument that the Rams don't deserve to be in the Super Bowl really is pushed on by, by the fact that they said they didn't earn their way in. They, they didn't earn their, their spot. And that argument in and of itself is, is an appeal that is made from people who believe that what is right and what is fair and what is just ought to take place. The truth is, all of us have a hard time with people who seem to come out ahead when they really haven't earned it. We have a hard time with people who, whose failures seem to outweigh their their successes, and as a result, we, we, we have difficulty if they seem to be the ones that get ahead in life. Someone we honestly who believe don't deserve to be there, if they make it, we are, we're challenged by that. Believe it or not, that sentiment actually ties in well with our text this morning. You probably thought I was going to preach about the Super Bowl, didn't you? <laughs> not a chance. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, we began this chapter last week working our way through uh, this, this text that we've been studying. And we looked at the first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 26 last week. And what we read about Isaac and, and, and how he handled the, the adversity that came into his life really didn't leave us with a very good positive example. As a matter of fact... What we recognize is that when adversity struck, when famine came in the land, the first thing that Isaac did was pack everything up and he would have gone to Egypt just like his father Abraham had done had God not stopped him providentially and kept him in the land of Canaan. 
He stopped him and kept him in the southern part of the land of Canaan, down in the place called Gerar, where the Philistines were. And while he was there, he got fearful again because his wife was so beautiful that he was afraid that the men of Gerar would come and kill him and take his wife from him. So he lied to them and said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. We walk away from the first 11, chap- first 11 verses of chapter 26 and we think, who is this guy? What kind, of, what kind of patriarch is this? How did he get into this wall and hall of faith that we read about in Hebrews 11, for example? And in light of that, with all of that building up, then we read verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Verse 13, the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now, the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You are much mightier than we are. And Isaac, he departed from there. And he, he pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and he dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you. And since we have done nothing to you but good... And have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. 
So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And they arose early in the morning and swore an oath to one another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the word that you have given us. We thank you that as a people we are allowed to come together this morning to sing praises to your name. Uh, Father, to be able to declare that no weapon formed against us will prosper. To be able to read your word and see that actually playing its way out in front of us today. We're grateful that we know that you're a sovereign God who loves us. We're grateful to know that on this day in which the attention of the world will be on a game that will be played this afternoon, we stop and declare that our attention is on you. On you, the one who died and rose again to save us from our sins. We praise you, Jesus, for being our Savior. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You'll notice in your outline this morning, much like last week, I provided you with a very simple outline. It's just four points, but those four points are all connected by the word blessing. And the reason that I did that is because this entire chapter is connected. The thread that runs through this entire chapter is the thread of blessing. You see it very beginning back in verse 3. In verse 3, the Lord tells Isaac, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. You see it again down in verse 24 when the Lord appears to him for a second time and he says, do not fear I am with you and I will bless you. And then you see it finally in verses 28 and 29 when Abimelech declares he says, we certainly have seen that the Lord is with you and then he says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So the thread of God's blessing and the presence of God and the favor of God upon Isaac runs throughout this entire chapter. God's blessing prevails over it. What I want us to do this morning is notice the nuances or the distinctions of that blessing as it plays its way out in this text. So therefore, the first point that I want you to note is the first distinction of that blessing, and it is unmerited blessing. Unmerited blessing. As I mentioned in my introduction, verse 12 is... Well, it's a little shocking, to be honest. Especially coming on the heels of Isaac's failure that we looked at just last week. With the men of Gerar, you recall that he was so afraid that they would come and kill him and take his wife, Rebecca, from him that he refused to acknowledge that she was his wife. She, he said that she is my sister because it put him in a, in a better place of negotiating with those men. And it was, it was a, a, a delay tactic to give him time to be able to, to get past the famine that was in the land. But what we recognize is that in his lying to those men, he was not allowing his faith in God's promises to inform his actions. And his testimony certainly did not bring glory to God. Nevertheless, in spite of that, in spite of all of that failure, according to verse 12, when Isaac took bags of seed and scattered it on the ground, the Lord blessed him a hundredfold. Kent Hughes notes that, a harvest of a hundredfold, while it was not completely unheard of, it was nevertheless rare. And then this harvest, though, 
came during a time of famine, as verse 1 says. It came during uh, one of the most inconceivable times that one would get that kind of return. And notice just exactly how the the writer there says it in verse 13. I love how the, the New King James puts it. Isaac began to prosper. He continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Now, if you like a word, just stick with it. I mean, just let it happen. Just, just let it run. He, he was great. He became greater and he got greater still. You could go with it that way. It's a great translation. Verse 14 tells us just how great. It gives us the, it gives us the context to be able to interpret that verse. He's had possessions of flocks. In other words, he had sheep. He had possessions of herds, which probably meant he had cows. And then he had great number of servants. In other words, he just continued to, to, to grow with all of his possessions. Now, let me pause here for just a second, though, and ask a question. Do you have a problem with that? Does that bother you? I mean, just, just think about it for a second. Does it bother you that God pours out his blessing upon a man who we just read failed miserably? I hope it doesn't. And here's why. In this picture, we get a glimpse of what the gospel is all about. The example from Isaac's life points us to the love and to the blessing that God pours out upon us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who are familiar with my preaching know that there's not very many weeks goes by that I don't quote from Romans 5, verse 8. It's one of my favorite verses. For God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. You see, God's grace, his favor, his, his blessings, they are poured out upon the undeserving. They're poured out upon sinners just like you and just like me. Did Isaac deserve everything that happened to him? Did he deserve the blessing that God gave to him? Had he earned God's favor? No, he had not. And neither have any of us. Isaac, Isaac here stands as an example that the blessing of God is unmerited. And as Ian DeGuid has put it, in spite of Isaac's sin and failure, God, God was nevertheless faithful. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. The fact that God is faithful to his promises is good news for sinners like you and me. Now, that's where this text begins. It begins by just establishing right up front that Isaac was the recipient of unmerited blessing. But what I want you to know next, the second point on your outline, is that that unmerited blessing was nevertheless a problematic blessing. It was a problematic blessing. We see that in the fact that his newfound prosperity in Gerar actually created a lot of problems for him. Verse 14 tells us that the Philistines envied Isaac. That word in Hebrew is, is a word that literally means it's an intense jealousy that they had of him. They hated him. They hated him for what he was doing. He had moved in. He was an outsider who had moved into their land. He was squatting on their property and he was just being blessed bountifully all the while they're going backwards because of the famine and they're starving and they can't seem to ever get anything rolling for them. And because that was the case, they hated him. Isaac, based upon what we've already read about him, would have probably feared for his life 
had it not been for the fact that back in verse 11, King Abimelech had already placed a, 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 an order among all the people, look, you better keep your hands off of Isaac and off his wife. Why? Because he, he feared God. He, he knew that he, he did not need to allow his people to go after Isaac directly, so they didn't. But that didn't mean that they didn't persecute him. Notice what happens. What they did do was start attacking his livelihood by going and, and pushing in the wells that his father had had dug during his lifetime. Abraham had had a lot of wells dug and, and that water was a necessary nutrient for all of the flocks and all of the herds and for all the crops that Isaac had. So the Philistines knew that and said, well, we can't touch him physically, but what we can do is go fill in all of those wells so that he doesn't have water anymore. Now you just think about that. I didn't do the Philistines any good. That didn't help them. It wasn't as if if they stopped up that water supply, it made more water for them on their property. No. That was simply a matter of harassment. It was a way of saying, we don't like you and we want you out of our country. And evidently it worked. Abimelech finally realized how much trouble was being caused Isaac. He goes to him in verse 16 and he says, look, you're much mightier than we are. You're going to have to leave. Now, why did he say that? Well, it's possible that he realized he could no longer protect Isaac from his people and that bad was going to come upon him. And he said, the best thing that can happen is for you to get out of here and that way we won't bring God's judgment upon us. That's one way of looking at it. It's also possible that he recognized that Isaac was getting so big and so prosperous that he was going to be greater than Abimelech. The later part of this chapter actually indicates that. Whatever the case may be, what we see is that Isaac gave in to Abimelech's request and he moved from Gerar proper out to the valley of Gerar. And there he began to redig the wells that his father had dug. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. And in the act of naming those wells, he was establishing his ownership of those wells. But notice what happens. The Philistines pursued him. And they pushed in those wells too. His servants even dug a well that would have been, this was the kind that you wanted. You dug a well where there was fresh water underneath. It was an artesian spring that was bringing the good water. And that, that was water that would not only water your crops and your, and, your, and your animals, but you could drink it too. The Philistines came and they quarreled with Isaac's men over ownership. And so Isaac named that well Essek because the name literally means to quarrel over. But did you notice that Isaac didn't quarrel? Isaac didn't quarrel. He didn't fight. He just simply moves on. He moves on again in verse 21, and he, his servants dig another well. But sure enough, the Philistines, they come, they argue over that one too. So Isaac names it Sitna, which means to oppose. What are we supposed to bring from that? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, first of all, here's the thing that I think you need to look at from, from the 30,000-foot level. You look at it from that level and you recognize that regardless of, of, of where Isaac was forced to dig, to dig, no matter how much and how often the Philistines came and stopped up his wells, he continued to find water in the wilderness. Why? Because God was with him. It's a perfect example of what Christian just sang. Christian just sang a song that says, No weapon formed against me shall prosper. No weapon that the Philistines formed against Isaac prospered. Every time they came at him, he moved, he found another well. 
The blessing of God's presence and favor continued to rest upon Isaac. That's the first thing that we kind of note from the, from the big level, but then I think we also should learn this. The pursuit of the Philistines and the problems that God's blessings actually brought upon Isaac, they also served as a reminder to him. It reminded him that he, just like his father before him, was an alien and a stranger in this promised land. The good notes this. He says that what we see here is a, is a reminder to Isaac that God's ultimate blessing upon his life, it had to rest in something other and something greater than just material prosperity. Think about it. Isaac found himself evicted from part of the land that God had promised that he would ultimately give to him. And furthermore, every time his servants dug a well or opened one that his father had previously dug, they came, the Philistines came and took it away. And therefore, Isaac's ultimate hope, well, it couldn't rest in wells. His ultimate hope couldn't rest in his prosperity that he had in this life. His ultimate hope had to rest in God, and that was exactly what God wanted him to notice. Now, there have been those who've criticized Isaac for the fact that how he handled the conflict with the Philistines. They question why he didn't fight. They question why he didn't stand up to them. Well, I want you to know significantly the text doesn't give us any answers about that. And as a matter of hermeneutics, as a matter of interpretation, when the text doesn't provide you with a specific answer, you know what you do? You keep reading. You keep moving on. You don't just stop and, and declare something that the text doesn't declare. Because in the continued reading of this text, what we see is that how he handled himself gives us a greater understanding of how perhaps we ought to handle ourselves. Here's my gut feeling. Isaac learned a valuable lesson in, in, in Gerar. When, when he, he declared that Rebekah was not his, his wife but his sister and he lied and he became under conviction about that when he was found out by Abimelech, I believe that we see he caved into fear in the face of God's promises. And, and, and his faith faltered as a result of that. But then as we see him begin to move, as the opposition comes his way and he moves further, and then it comes again and he moves even further, I believe what there we get a picture of is what it means to, to actually trust in God's provisions, to trust in God's promises. See, the text tells us that that Isaac continued to move and he continued to give over those wells. But then finally there in verse 22, notice that he moved again and he dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called the name Rehoboth because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Here's what I believe that this narrative section actually reveals. Rather than becoming worn down from all the conflict that he had endured, Rather than, rather than giving in to his fears, rather than, than starting a territorial war, Isaac instead displayed a determined faith in God's promises. He, he persevered and he continued to move. And whenever he moved, he would dig another well. And when somebody would come and argue with him over that, he moved again and he would dig another well. And when they came and they took it from him, he would move again and he would dig another well. And he finally got to the place of Rehoboth, which meant open space, an open place. 
and he was finally able to experience some peace from the conflict. But I want you to notice that his personal migration was still not done. The text goes on to tell us that he continued to move, and he moved to a place called Beersheba, which if you go back and you read in Genesis, you'll find that that's, that was really home base for Abraham for a very large portion of his life when he lived in Canaan, in the promised land. In fact, some scholars even suggest that Beersheba was the place that God had been providentially moving Isaac all along to finally get him back there, which many scholars, by the way, say that was where Isaac had been born. Here's what we do know. God appeared to Isaac once again once he got to Beersheba. And in verse 24, it says the Lord appeared to him on the same night, the same night what? As he got to the land of Beersheba. On that night, the Lord appeared to him and says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And then according to verse 25, that's where Isaac stopped and he built an altar to the Lord. Isaac recognized that God's hand of protection had been upon him throughout his time in Gerar and then all that time in the wilderness and that it was God who had blessed him all along their way. And the building of an altar there in Beersheba was Isaac's way of worshiping God and proclaiming all the favor that had been shown to him had come from God's hands. In other words, what, it began, what you begin to see is that Isaac recognized that the blessing that came from God was very evident in his life. And that's the third thing that I want you to see. That's the third aspect of blessing. It's evident blessing. Isaac couldn't look back on what had happened to him and point to anybody else. He couldn't point to himself. He couldn't point to somebody else's actions that caused the blessing in his life. The only person that he could point to was the saving God who had protected him and provided for him all through. It was evident blessing. And the altar that he built there in Beersheba was there for him to proclaim to all, this is who my God is. This is who I worship. But here's the thing. It wasn't just evident to Isaac. Do you realize who showed up after he's there in Beersheba? It's Ola Abimelech and his good buddy Ahuzath. Who would you, how would you like to have that name? And Phicol, the commander of his army, what they believe is this is the king, this is his chief of staff, and this is his military commander. And they show up in Beersheba because of the evident blessing of God upon Isaac's life. Notice, notice what they say. They say, Let, can we make an oath with you? Can we sign a non-aggression treaty with you? We, 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 want, we don't want you to do us any harm. We're not going to do you any harm. We want us to have peace among us. After all, do us no harm, verse 28, since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If I'd been there, this is what I'd say. Say what? You ain't done me any harm. What about all those wells that you just walked past as you walked past all those that you caved in to get to me? What about all those that your men are getting water from right now that my men dug 
And you're telling me that you haven't done me any harm. You may not have laid your hand on me, yeah. But do you mean to tell me that you didn't come after me? Now that's what I said. Doesn't matter what I said. Isaac didn't say that. What I think this is in text for is to show us just how great Isaac had grown. Do you realize that in, when, when peace treaties were, were pursued in Old Testament times, when, when someone would sue someone for peace, it was always the weaker party who was pursuing the greater party. Isaac had grown so much that Abimelech takes his chief of staff and his military commander and says, can we kind of forget about what all has taken place in the past? And can we from this point forward, can we just be nice to one another from this point forward? Now, we might think that that was a smooth move on his part, but you know he gives us the reasons why. Verse 28, the first, first part of it, listen to what Abimelech says. We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. It was evident to them that God's hand had been on Isaac. Not only that, but look at the last statement in verse 29. You are now the blessed of the Lord. They gave him a title. The blessed of the Lord. That's who you are, Isaac. We can tell it. We know because we've seen how you've handled the adversity that's come into your life. We've seen how you've been a peacemaker, not someone who's just standing up to fight every chance you get. They've they also seen how his increased holdings were, were evidences of God's blessing upon him. What's interesting is that when you get to this text, it really causes me to ask myself a question. Could the same things be said of me? Could others look at my lifestyle? Could they look at the way that I handle the inevitable troubles and the struggles that come my way? And could they examine my life and say, like Abimelech did, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. It's clear that God's hand rests upon you. Brothers and sisters, each and every one of us in this room need to ask ourselves those questions and ponder their answers. Can others look at your life and honestly say, we have seen clearly that the Lord is with you? One writer puts it this way. He says, does your daily walk point people unmistakably to the God whom you serve and whose presence in your life you claim? We could actually boil it down to an even simpler question. We sing it sometimes. Do others see Jesus in you? Brothers and sisters, our lives ought to reflect God's blessings and his presence. A steady, persevering faith in the face of persecution and trouble makes a very clear statement to those around us about who our trust and who our confidence is in. And this text goes on to tell us that Isaac swore an oath with Abimelech and his buddies and, and then he sent them away. And significantly, it was also there in Beersheba many years earlier that Abraham had also signed a covenant with Abimelech. And so you see the continued parallels between Isaac's life and Abraham's life continuing on. It was that same treaty back in chapter 21 that the Philistines had been 
negating all through chapter 26. But nevertheless, just as his father had done, Isaac does here. And he signs this peace agreement with those who had been his enemies. And it's really an early example of what Solomon would go on to write later. In Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So Abimelech leaves. And then notice what happens next in verse 32. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about a well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba, and that is the name of Beersheba to this day. And that leads me to the fourth point. And the fourth point is just this. It's continued blessing. Continued blessing. The same God who promised that he would bless him, did bless him. Even though it caused problems in his life. Even though he had difficulties, God's, God's faithfulness never faltered along the way. And, it, and even in, when it brought peace to him, God's blessings continued to flow. It's an, amazing, it's an amazing chapter. Now right here, some of you are probably thinking, oh, I sure wish that happened in my life. I wish that happened to me. I sure wish I could go and sow seed out there and get a hundredfold back. I wish that every time that I lost something, that God would replace it with another something that I knew even better than what I lost. But preacher, the truth is right now, I, I'm a follower of Christ and I love him, but my enemies seem to be doing better than me. My bank account's about broke. I'm going through difficult times. My life's falling apart. If all that's rolling through your mind, I want to point you to the fact that, that the blessings that Isaac received, though they were material blessings, you realize that they were ultimately just signs of a spiritual blessing that was his by virtue of the, the promise that God had made to Abraham. And the fact of the matter is the same is true for every one of us in this room who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider it this way. If you, if you are a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have something that unbelievers do not have. You have a personal relationship with the Lord God of heaven. And I want you to consider just a few things that that relationship brings to you by way of benefit. Number one, you have been gifted with an eternal salvation that you can never lose. Secondly, you have the presence of God in your life, which means that you'll never be alone. Thirdly, you are assured of the power of God working in your life, which means you will never be without hope. And then fourthly, you can understand that you have God's very word, which will be a direction for you. It will provide guidance from you, so you will never be without a clear direction in your life. As Kent Hughes writes this, he says, God's presence in the lives of believers today cannot be determined materially as it was in the patriarchs in the old economy, but in a more profound and searching means. You see, the material possessions... And the blessings that Isaac enjoyed, they were given as a deposit on the even greater spiritual blessings that were his by virtue of the promise that God had made to Abraham. And furthermore, as this text makes clear, the blessings of God's presence will be seen by unbelievers as we navigate the ups and downs of life. We do that with a confident and assured faith. The faith, that, as the writer of Hebrews says, is the substance of things hoped for not the evidence of things, and the evidence of things unseen. 
That leads me always then to my sermon in a sentence, which is this. Though undeserved and opposed by the world, God's blessing and abiding presence should cause us to live worshipful, faith-filled lives for his glory, a testimony to the watching world. You'll notice I didn't read the last two verses of this chapter. I honestly think that it actually ties in well with with the Jacob-Esau story. But the last two verses just mentioned that when Esau was 40 years old, that he married two women, two Hittite women, who were Canaanites. It's interesting, this entire chapter has been a parallel between the life of Isaac and the life of Abraham. The life of Isaac and the life of Abraham. Where Abraham went, Isaac wound up going. Everything that Abraham did, Isaac wound up doing. The people Abraham interacted with, Isaac interacted with. But you get to the last two verses and you realize something. Isaac was also 40 years old when he got married. And you remember the great care that Abraham took back in chapter 24 to ensure that Isaac married a wife that was suitable for him by sending his servant all the way back to the Ur of the Chaldeans to find, into Mesopotamia to find a wife for him? You get to the last two verses of this chapter and you realize that his son Esau was also 40 years old when he got married. But the same care and attention that Abraham had shown with regard to Isaac, Isaac did not show with regard to Esau. And Esau not only married one Canaanite woman, he married two. And the text tells us that they brought great grief upon Isaac and Rebekah. And we see this man of faith stumble. We see him trip. And if we hadn't been disappointed in him yet, wait till the next chapter. When he, he takes who he's going to give his blessing to is based upon how well his stomach is filled with wild gain. Isaac was a man of flawed faith. He was a man that, quite frankly, we might look at his life and said, he doesn't deserve to be there. He doesn't deserve to be one of those patriarchs. We might even think that he, that God had the penalty flag in his hand, but he never threw it on Isaac. Here's the thing, though. That's what grace is all about. God gives his grace to those who don't deserve it. He gives it to those who haven't earned it. In fact, God's grace is not given to those who are perfect, but rather it is given to those who have messed up thousands of times. Sinners like Isaac, sinners like you and like me, we benefit from God's blessing and favor not because of something that we have done. Rather, we benefit because of what Jesus, the promised seed, has done. What his offer of grace means And what it demands is faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. That is how failures like us receive pardon and forgiveness and restoration and eternal life. So I just want to challenge you tonight. If you go home, if you choose to watch the Super Bowl tonight. And you hear all the conversations about why the Rams shouldn't be in it. And I want you to know I ain't got a dog in the fight. I couldn't care less who wins that game. Let me tell you something. As you watch the Rams play tonight, you just remember that their story is just a small taste of the greater, bigger story that tells us that those who are undeserving 
from the world's perspective, those who never should get in from the world's perspective, those who deserve to be disqualified, are nevertheless like us. We are those whose sins and wrongs should have disqualified us. But yet Christ died for the ungodly. And he saved sinners just like you and just like me. And therefore we enjoy the unmerited and continued blessing of God. And because that is the case, we should strive to live worshipful, faith-filled lives for his glory and as a testimony to the watching world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father.